Very Bad Wizards is a podcast with a philosopher, my dad, and psychologist, Dave Pizarro, having an informal discussion about issues in science and ethics. Please note that the discussion contains bad words that I'm not allowed to say, and knowing my dad, some very inappropriate jokes. What we publish on this is going to get a lot of attention. From who? From other researchers, academics. <laughs> academics? <laughs> well, they're going to study your study. <laughs> And do this shit change. <laughs> Welcome to Very Bad Wizards. I'm Tamler Summers from the University of Houston. Dave, it's our 50th episode. I mean, we've really done 50 episodes. Or have we? Dun, dun, dun. No, because I, I mean, seriously. I, I don't know. <laughs> How could I know? How could, I, I think we've done 50 episodes, too, but... Uh, of course, they they want us to think that. <laughs> the real question is, have we done fifty crappy episodes? <laughs> well, that's that's not <laughs> why, that's not a question. The answer is <laughs> definitely yes. It's a question. I don't know. I don't. Know, do you ever think about this? Like, how do we know we're not all in the matrix, <laughs> dude? How do we know that we're actually here in America and not part of the matrix? I mean, everything in your experience. Are we really here, or are we just part of a giant battery? I don't really believe in the Matrix, no, Your Honor. Neither do I. No, I don't believe in it either. No, of course not. It's just an interesting idea that it's open for discussion. I believe in the Matrix, Your Majesty. I knew it, so do I. You know why, Dave? Have you ever had deja vu? All the time. You know what that is, don't you? Glitch in the Matrix. Fucking A. <laughs> this is, this is uh, I take it that this is the bane of your teaching of the, f- this this philosophical concept that when the Matrix came out, everybody thought <laughs> that they knew something yeah. about m- metaphysics. Twenty percent of all students would raise their hand and the, and they would say, you know, it's sort of like in the Matrix, you know. Well, I think I, the, I had to ban it. I had a rule, honestly, and to swear to God, I had a rule. Uh, you're allowed to mention the Matrix twice in the semester. After that, your grade goes down by half a grade. It's like, do you remember on uh, Wayne's World where he goes to the guitar store and he starts playing Stairway to Heaven? And, yeah. and he's like, excuse me, and he points to a sign, no Stairway to Heaven. <laughs> so the, the reason we're even talking about this is because our episode today is a movie episode to celebrate our 50th podcast. Once again, I got suckered. Into it- you got suckered into doing a movie episode. I got suckered into this topic. I think by three episodes, we have now exhausted all of the films that I. <laughs> I was like, wait, you always can say I, that, and can then I you end use up back having to the cool- future again? 
It just uh, doesn't uh, matter what the topic is. Groundhog Day is going to be on there. <laughs> so fuck, now I've got to change my list. Um, so, so yeah, the premise is movies. We wanted to broadly construe it, right? So, so we didn't even talk too much about the topic, but it's movies roughly about the nature of reality. Right? And, yeah, the, the <clears throat> sort of questionable sometimes nature of reality, right? Right. And we haven't figured out a title yet. And the only rule that we had was the Matrix cannot be on our list. And, and now we've already talked more about the Matrix than we're going to talk about all of the other. And I will say this. I don't know if this is true of your list. I don't even have any Matrix-ish movies on my list. Uh, like no, no movies that are sort of you know science fiction-y, Robert Nozick-y. I I have one. Well, yeah, we'll talk about it. One yeah. that, yeah, one science fiction, but none, no, nothing Matrixy. I don't think any of these would be compared to the Matrix. We should be stoned for this episode, and that's the only, that's my biggest regret. Now I'm doing this at work because we might be filming this, and I wanted a good, like, guaranteed good connection. But we should definitely be stoned for this. Especially, there's one movie on my on my list that I don't think you can get through without being stoned. <laughs> <laughs> and it might be true of this podcast. <clears throat> it might be true of this podcast. Yeah. I mean, I'm not going to get through, through it. I don't know if we'll get through it. You also need to be pretty much stoned all the time now that you're a famous hip-hop producer. Well, thank you for bringing that up, Tamler. I'll pay you later. That was a cheesy middle-class white guy joke. I'll pay you later. Thanks, Tamler. <laughs> uh, thank you for saying I'm a big hip-hop producer. <laughs> <laughs> no, I yeah. So, so the music that I made... Uh, that I put together for the podcast just out of sheer joy of messing around with with sampled sounds. My friend nephew Damani McDowell, Monty Beats is his producer name. He's he produces for some rappers, and they heard one of the beats that I post on. I post all of the music on SoundCloud, and they recorded a song over it. So you told me that that you were prouder of this than anything that's happened in your professional academic career. There's no, certainly no single publication or tenure <clears throat> or getting the job at Cornell that made me just in the moment as happy <laughs> as yeah. when Damani sent me that text say, saying, check this out. And I heard the rap for the first time. I was like, this, this, I, I was going to go to my boss and just turn in my resignation papers like they do in movies. And then, yeah, like punch him in the face. <laughs> Luckily, with tenure, it allows me to just just do a shitty job and make beats all day. <laughs> anyway, so and no podcasts point. and yeah. shitty podcasts. Shitty podcasts. <laughs> uh, but seriously, this is a big achievement. This is our fiftieth episode, uh, so we're going to get into the movies first. But but first, you are at Cornell, and apparently, you have been manipulating my emotions via yeah. Facebook. I wish. In very unethical ways. I do. I, I post annoying cat memes. <laughs> so the story is, one of the researchers on this paper published in PNAS, which is always hilarious to say. It is a paper using real-life Facebook users. And as some of you might know, Facebook has algorithms for determining what you see in your newsfeed. And so there is some calculation that is made about how much you've interacted with people, how much they've interacted with other people. Um, it's it's just sort of generating this this uh, set of stories, set of statements from certain people, status updates. And what they did was they took a subset, a fairly small subset, I think it was like 700,000, and they tweaked the algorithm. So they tweaked the algorithm in the following ways. They, they can tell in a status up, update, so suppose you write that, you know, I fucking hate the way Game of Thrones ended. The algorithm set, sees the word hate. It's a negative valence word. Um, it, ca it can tabulate the algorithm, can 
dictate how many negative words will appear in your feed and how many positively valence words like love and happy will appear in your feed. Now, for, I think the first thing to point out is this is a very rough metric. That is, it doesn't take into account the context. So if you say, I fucking hate it when I get a salary raise because now I have to decide how much money I should spend on my new car. Like, uh, that's probably so it, a it doesn't have, like, they can't figure out humble brags. They can't figure that out. There are a lot of other examples where you might use negative words um, to communicate what is obvious to any human being uh, that is uh, happiness. And this is problematic because the researchers and the press pitched this as a study on emotions. Emotional contagion. Emotional right? contagion. So they randomly assigned half of these 700-something thousand users to get slightly more positive words and the other half to get slightly more negative words. And they tracked over time and they measured those status updates and they found that people who see more negative words were slightly more likely to use more negative words in their status updates and vice versa for the, for the positive ones. So people are up in arms about this because they, they, the claim is that Facebook has been manipulating our emotions. So surely this is something that's worth talking about. I, I, I actually not sure I even ag- I agree with that. This seems to me a classic case of people just finding something to be outraged about. Right. And I, I and a kind of pathetic example of that. Um, the uh, it's just the idea that you're going to get all worked up about it and freaked out about it and not recognize that this kind of stuff happens. All the time right. in every area of life, deliberately and and, and unintentionally, it, I, I just found to be I couldn't I couldn't even read about this honestly. It's, it was just it was annoying. It's dumb. It's really dumb. It's a moral panic, and the moral panic seems to have to do with I think the word manipulating, and I, and I think that that we would be dumb to think that. Uh, this isn't what marketing and advertising and Facebook has been trying to do to us for quite a <laughs> for for a long time. Since the whole point of advertising existing. is to change, yeah. is to manipulate you into buying something or into feeling something that would be make you more likely to buy something, feel risk, feel danger, buy a safe car or buy an insurance premium, feel risky, buy a fun package to you know uh, mountain climb in in Yosemite. Whatever, like that, that kind of manipulation, if that's what we're concerned about, this is a minimal, minimal amount of – we're not even sure that any emotional contagion has gone on with this. Um, and the idea was Facebook is essentially like plugged into your brain and making you happy or sad. <laughs> right. It's also not the case that they don't tweak their algorithm regularly anyway to right. who knows what they've been doing. Maybe, maybe they've been experimenting uh, or at least – changing that algorithm to make you see more people that recently purchased something right, right? so there the, the difference here is that it was published and yeah. and and i think that sort of irrationally gets people into thinking of facebook as full of evil scientists trying to fuck with our mood which it very well may be but, but this study isn't an example of yeah not to mention that it is such a small effect and it's not even clear that it's emotion Right. So I mean, but well, that, I mean, we yeah. we take for granted that it's p hacking that even got, <laughs> got the significance of the results anyway. Right. But. right. The more the more pressing question that I think is less relevant for for us is whether or not. So if I run a study, I have to submit this through my human subjects committee in my university, my institutional review board, get it approved, and I have to get consent from 
the participants that say like, hey, we're doing a quick 15-minute study. Do you want to be part of this? Or we're doing a month-long study where we track your whatever, whatever. Do you want to be part of this? When you do experiments with corporations, their legal team is the one that clears right. things. And it turns out that when you agree to join Facebook, it's just wrapped into that. When you click, I agree, I've read the terms of service, it's just you're, you know, you're agreeing to be experimented on. I remember that when I was reading the no. terms of service. Uh, could you believe page 28? Oh, I, my God. Yeah, that, was, that gave me pause. It reminded <laughs> me I? of page 94 of the iTunes uh, Terms <laughs> of Service. Oh, please. It's nothing alike. Um, we'll talk about that later. <laughs> so I think that, that people, uh, maybe, maybe they just don't realize. I mean, Google's homepage, the amount of experiments that somebody estimated that when you search on Google, the average person on the Internet is enrolled in about three experiments in Google. Right. Now, those are about optimizing things like, hey, if we put the button a little to the left, do people click more or whatever? It's not about directly manipulating your emotions, but it is about manipulating you. It's about, yeah. about manipulating your behavior, and we're being experimented on. So, yeah. so I think all of this is just moral panic. That- the outrage on this is like a combination of that we have to be indignant about something or we don't feel comfortable with ourselves and a kind of startling naivete about the real world mm-hmm. and something that you would probably be attracted to a kind of kantian notion of the self as uninfluenced by any external forces in any way <laughs> i thought the noumena could influence me to be honest i wish we could manipulate emotions that effectively well you have a way of manipulate like you frustrate me like the emotion of frustration you seem I mean, to be able to I'm- just get and, really easily, and I didn't. Uh, I didn't get approval from my institution <laughs> <laughs> to do this. Only, at least only I Jen, hope that's true. Jen wrote me a letter at the beginning <laughs> saying, I, I, "You have a green. You have a go to <laughs> fuck with Tamlin." She yeah. would. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Um, should we take a break and come back and do our top five Let's movies about reality? <laughs> Just wearing free, but what to say? I take none of it seriously. What to say? I take none of it seriously. 
Welcome back to Very Bad Wizards. Uh, I'm David Pizarro from Cornell University because I didn't actually say that. So we're talking about our top five movies about reality. Uh, really about uh, movies that, at least the way that I thought of, that make you question reality. Now, this is it's still a very, very broad uh, a broad category. And I think we did that on purpose. Big. Yeah. But there is... At least there is this feeling, uh, that's the best I can describe it, that there are certain movies that when when you're done with them, you're like, oh, holy shit, right? Yeah. Like, like, that's not, I know that the world isn't like that, but it's like a very creative and artistic way of instilling this feeling of, of, of doubt that we, we live our daily lives assuming that everything is real. Interesting. So I think we interpreted this differently. You chose movies that gave you that feeling at the end, like, oh, life could really be like this. It, well, not all of them, but but yeah. So my themes are more like, it's, it's more about the sort of the subjective interpretation of reality. Mm-hmm. And there are a lot of movies that are about that, about yeah. how different people i mean you when you were pitching this to me knowing my uh pretentious film school wannabe aspirations you mentioned rashomon and although i didn't put that on my list that's an honorable mention Uh, that's a great example of you know four different interpretations that's that's on my list so so we might as well talk about it it's but but keep talking about it so i'll just make it my no if it's on your list well, well, I'll just make it my number five um, because that is one in one way, I think, um, how I also interpret it. Rashomon, I think, is one of the best examples of a kind of movie that leads you to doubt whether or not there is such a thing as objective reality. And the way that it does so, and I don't know enough about the history of cinema, but but Rashomon apparently is at least the first to make it so obvious within the plot that you can't trust what's being told to you. This introduces a different level of doubt. This is you are watching a movie and they can't even get it right. Like the narrator, there is no universal reliable narrator. And so yeah. uh, so Rashomon is a film in 1950 by the great director Akira Kurosawa. Um, and it is a, a samurai movie, I guess, in, in, if we're going to lump it into that kind of genre. But it really is a movie about an event that takes place. And you hear the event described by four different characters. You hear it from a, a bandit who, who comes and, and attacks, is, he attacks the samurai and his wife, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, you hear it from the wife, you hear it from the samurai, and you hear it from an objective. And there's a rape. Yeah, there's a rape. And the... Or and, potentially. 
Right. So you hear it from three people who were involved, and then you hear it from the woodcutter who just saw it. Right. Right. And here's the brilliance. At this time, and I think even nowadays, your average moviegoer is like, okay, so what, but what really happened? Right. Right. And it's actually is really hard to shake that, even though we're a sophisticated, modern, movie-going audience. We want to know what really happened. And this leaves you with this feeling. I want to compare this. I hope this isn't on your list. But the movie Inception? No, it's not. But yeah. Okay, good. Right. So the movie Inception, as much as I love Christopher Nolan, it leaves you at the end with a doubt as to what's really going on. But you're, it's a very different kind of doubt. What right. you're doubting in that movie is... Is the Leo DiCaprio character still in a dream? Oh, I don't know. The top didn't right. fall or whatever. Sorry, sorry. Spoiler alert. Spoiler alert. Um, uh, that doesn't that doesn't make me feel weird about the events in my life. No, that's right. like a puzzle that is unsolved, and you never find out the answer to the mm-hmm. puzzle, or you find it out. Like I mm-hmm. think Inception. I don't know. I think there's a right answer to that, but even for someone who believes. Uh, as I tend to believe, uh, I'm a realist of all kinds of ways, that there is actually only one thing that happened, right? And that some people, if there is conflict, then one person is wrong. The unreliable witnesses, I, I still don't, upon watching this movie, conclude that three of the people are lying. I'm still like, no, it's really possible that nobody really got it. Nobody yeah. really got it. So even if there is a true way that things happened, we are epistemically, it's unavailable to us. Right in a way that that um, the the media of cinema delivered in a, a brilliant brilliantly because you are seeing through eyes right you right. are seeing through these things that we trust there is something about the visual medium that if you do you remember that that tale of of when they first had a moving train coming at 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 moviegoers they ducked. That's because what you see, you believe. And, right. and here, I think, is just a brilliant, again, Kurosawa is, is, is brilliant in all kinds of ways, but a brilliant way to make us feel that sort of doubt that a whole, a whole class in philosophy probably couldn't make you feel. I hope this isn't on your list. It's not on mine just because I haven't seen it in too long, but F for Fake is mm-hmm. like that, too, by Orson Welles. Um, no. It's like this little movie sort of essay. And it was what reminded me of it is what you said about how somehow the visual medium makes you trust what's going on even more. If you actually see it happening, then you just implicitly trust it. And if, and if you find out afterwards, that um, that messes with you. Right. That's why people still feel betrayed when they find out that things were photoshopped. Like, we know all of the things that, that you know that can be done to the visual medium, but it's still, I think, one in which that initial impulse to see, to believe what we see is, is, is so strong. All right, great pick. That is a very good pick. I'm glad you had it on your list because I didn't have it on mine. It was an honorable mention. I just have, I haven't seen it since I was in college, I don't think, or right after, so that's why I didn't put it on it. Yeah, I haven't seen it in maybe four or five years, but, but I thought it was important enough. And, and I think it's, it, we're saying that people refer to the Rashomon effect. Like this is a, this yeah. is a tactic that's used over and over again. Um, this is just a literate person should see and know about yeah. Rashomon. And Kurosawa is just, he's so good. Yeah. He's really good. Ikiru is another great movie of his. Seven Samurai, of course. Of course. All right. Uh, I'll go on to my number five. I, by the way, I wonder if there's going to be overlap. Do you think there is? Like, we'll have any of the same ones? I, you know, I, I feel this time that, that it's even less likely that, that we're going to have overlap. I but, can yeah. see you having two or three of these, but I, 
Uh, and this one, what made me think of it is this one. I could see this one being on your list. Uh, and it's a documentary. I could have made this whole list of documentaries. I do have a documentary. Oh, here we go. <laughs> you know, because they are supposed to be telling us a true story. Right. Unlike movies, they are supposed to be telling a true story, a story about something that happened in real life. They're supposed to be recounting events in real life. But every documentary has a perspective, um, the way it's shot. The way it's edited, especially, right? Right. And so what we get is the filmmaker's take on what actually happened. We get their version of what happens. Now, some documentaries are really trying their best to just tell a real story. Like right. the Ken Burns documentaries, a lot of the Errol Morris documentaries through. But you can't get around the fact that you're choosing how things are shot and what you leave yeah. in and what you leave out. There are, they can be attempting to tell a real story, but they can't, they can't get rid of their subjective perspective. Right. Now, some documentaries then take advantage of that sort of conflict and issue. And this might be – there are two that are on my list. And, one, and this is one of them that is really in part about this idea of questioning what's real and what's authentic. And it's exit through the gift shop. <laughs> yep, that's exactly that, what yeah, – You one, have that too? That is on my list. That, yep. I, I could see if we were both going <laughs> to yeah. – it's the way in, with, in which we're both a little hipster. So Banksy, <laughs> so we should just talk about this right now then. Here is at least the sort of on-the-surface plot of it is there's this weird kind of comical French guy, Thierry Guetta. He's this French immigrant who just apparently just has so much f- – he just takes videos constantly, obsessively. Right. And, uh, you know, he's constantly has all these videos of his family. And then he, um, he gets really interested in the street art scene. Somehow uh, he, he's got. Assuming this is a real, a real guy, he has. He he just has a lot of energy and a lot of initiative, and gets you know some of these street artists who are very secretive in how they do. But he ends up getting really cool foot, footage of people like Shepard Ferry and eventually right. Banksy doing some of their classic and yeah. Appara- pieces apparently, of art. the Space Invader guy was his cousin. Um, right, and that's, that's that was his in. in. Yeah, yeah, that was his in into that world. Right, this this much is evident from the beginning that he's a hanger on to these guys, and he just sort of tags and, and and admittedly a hanger on. He tags right. along. He wants to get p- v- footage of what they're doing, and eventually he's led to Banksy and interviews Banksy, and then gets like cool footage of Banksy doing some of his most famous shows but also some of his most famous like uh, installations like installations. That, that phone yeah. booth yeah that the he gets in the zoo remember right. he gets in so then, like about, I don't know, was it about midway through the movie, uh, t- two-thirds of the way through the movie, he, 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 he's trying to make a documentary about street right. art. And we see his documentary. We see little clips of it. <laughs> Banksy is telling us about this documentary that this guy made. And, uh, and it's, it's actually really funny. Like, just like, it's worth it alone just to see what this guy had made. Right. It's the most jarring... <laughs> The following spring, Terry returned to England. I'm going to do a flip. All his years of filming and thousands of hours of material had been crafted into a 90-minute film with the intriguing title, Life Remote Control. (laughs) 
you know, it was at that point I realised that maybe Terry wasn't actually a filmmaker and he was maybe just someone with mental problems who happened to have a camera. just seemed to go on and on. It was an hour and a half of unwatchable nightmare trailers, essentially like somebody with a short attention span with a remote control flicking through a cable box of 900 channels. Peace to the whole world. Even the name is really funny. Life remote control. Life remote. Life remote control. <laughs> and it's just like a bunch of really, really. And Banksy says, "This is like the worst thing I've ever seen. It's it makes on, no yeah. sense." So then he says, "I want to take over this documentary," and I guess as a way of sort of allowing him to do that and taking his mind off Guetta's mind off his documentary he says look I'll help you put together a show like a street art show yourself right, and you can right. and uh, the guy uh, has always had an interest in film in doing art himself <laughs> yes yeah and he becomes he adopts a persona yeah Mr. Mr. Brainwash <laughs> and and then the last part of the movie is in some ways a caricature of the LA art scene it's about him doing this stuff that is unbelievably derivative of street artists before him and in some sense you know totally inauthentic and the whole point of street art is it should be the most authentic kind of art and that's what all you ever see this guy this guy hires a bunch of artists to do the work for him he conceptually guides them he says right. all you ever see him doing is like sprinkling some right. paint on on a canvas or like on, a stencil on an object. Or, <laughs> yeah. yeah so yeah yeah so he has this whole like corporate machine essentially putting together this show and the la art critics who don't come across very very well in this no, movie no, just they, seem sort of like but they're taken in by it and then yeah okay so uh, and then that's sort of the the you know on the surface it is and this might be I mean this is a cool I, enough idea right there like it's about a meditation on authenticity and art and yeah. what that means and and you know why does it matter whether Banksy did something or whether he did something or you know stuff that Paul Bloom has written some really cool stuff um, and 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 I think that that is how most people at least at first viewed the documentary is like. Wow, this guy, huh, that's interesting that this guy who was so obviously not talented through whatever the hype and, and whether witting or unwitting sort of cosigns by, by Banksy and, and Shepard Ferry sold the world millions of dollars worth of art. It's, it's seen at that level as a critique of the way that the world really views aesthetics. That's, I think, how, how it was received. Yeah, at first, and then there was a, and then just an act, like a meta sort of question arose of whether this whole thing wasn't a prank by Banksy, whether this right. guy Harry Guetta, whether he was even a real person or just sort of an invention of Banksy. There were even right. questions about whether that just is Banksy because Banksy is anonymous and nobody <laughs> knows who he is. So is is that Banksy? And there was this sort of conspiracy theory that this whole thing was an elaborate prank, that what he did in the whole movie and the whole sort of concept of the movie was an elaborate prank. Now, 
Banksy has is on record as denying that. Right. As is Shepard Fairey's uh, that they didn't invent this guy. And there's a few things to indicate that it, that it wasn't. So I've thought a lot about this movie and what actually went on. Um, I love this quote from, it's on the Wikipedia page, Banksy's former spokesman. He says, I think the joke is on dot, dot, dot. I don't know who the joke is on, really. I don't right. even know if there is a joke. Right. And that's why this is brilliant, because you still are not sure. Right. No. And we'll, I don't think we'll, I don't know if we'll ever be sure. No. Uh, there's I no indication that we'll ever be sure whether, right. you know, how much of this is a hoax, if any of it's a hoax, if it is a hoax, what the point of that hoax is. I feel like Banksy probably, it's probably some combination of what was really happening with this guy. And Banks is seeing, like, you know, it would. You know, it would be a real fuck you to the to the art world if we got this guy to do an art show. Right. Um, the question that I have is whether the guy, Mr. Brainwash, has any has any notion that he's the means by which Banksy is pranking people. Because there's two things that are suspicious. One is how just buffoonish he is. Yeah. Like it almost seems like it's got to be an act to some extent. Uh, and then the yeah. other thing is just how much footage he has. Right. It, and why would people like secretive people like Banksy and Shepard Ferry and, you know, the other street artists, why would they allow such sort of intimate portrayals by a guy like him? You know, right. at least with Rajaman, you know that it really was actors who are performing this story. But with this one, we just don't know who's acting or if anybody's acting and no. what. Exactly. I mean, Banksy is sort of on record as being frustrated by this because he thinks it distracts from his real point, which is about authenticity in the art world. But this is his version of Duchamp's signing a urinal. Uh, I think this is right, (laughs) except for that he can now get away with not not admitting to having signed it on purpose. So what Um, if you had to bet your life? What would you bet? I would bet I would bet that that Banksy used this guy's ego and motivation and actually ended up putting out this movie as a as a real critique not as a documentary critique but like as a (laughs) as as just like a like fuck you guys Uh, you know like it is like it's a very cool multimedia prank yeah, you know, and it's if, not a prank in the sense that what's his name, um, Joaquin Phoenix, you know, just pranks people and like, but he, but he breaks, you know, he breaks character, and you know that it was a prank. It's it's more along the lines of of Andy Kaufman, who just right. never broke. Right. Someone described the movie as the Borat of the, <laughs> of the artsy. Right. <laughs> and there's, you know, with uh, Terry Guetta in the role of Borat, sort of. Borat. Which he, he just doesn't know. This is like the big question is, does he know that he's Borat? Does he know that he's Borat? Yeah. Exactly. All um, right. Well, that's good. I'm, uh, that's, that's two. Yeah, that's, that's two, two right there. Should I go again since uh, you've now done two and I've only done one? Go again. Yeah. All right. My number four is by far my favorite sort of quote unquote children's movie. I don't know about by far, but definitely my favorite quote unquote children's movie of all time. Is, is this going to be on your list? I, it might. <laughs> oh, wow. Wow. I think uh, the only question is which Miyazaki is it? Right. Because it could be. Miyazaki really plays on this theme a lot right. in his movies. The one I chose is Spirited Away. Uh, I, chose, uh, I chose My Neighbor's Totoro. Uh, okay. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So that's good. Spirited Away is my choice, and it is an absolutely fantastic, visually beautiful, 
and very moving movie about a little girl. So she's moving to a new town, and she's about, I don't know, 12, 12 years old, 12, 13 years old. Her, um, they see their house up on a hill, but then they, the, the car stops, and they see this sort of area through a tunnel. They go through the tunnel, and... They find a restaurant that's sort of serving really good food, and the parents start eating it, and she's very nervous. She reminded me of Eliza a couple years ago, just sort of worried about getting in trouble constantly, and we shouldn't be doing this, we shouldn't be doing this. It turns out she's kind of right in the sense, because her her parents just turn into pigs, and she's just thrust into this crazy world where there's this bathhouse. So her name's Chihiro, and, and she gets involved with this bathhouse, this amazing bathhouse where all these sort of spirits and monsters and, 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 and ghosts and various talking animals are all sort of in there working for this woman. And she is, wants to turn her parents back from pigs into people. And the, the, the bathhouse owner demands of her that she give up her name. So she goes from Chihiro to Sen. And she says, I'm going to call you Sen. Chihiro is not your name anymore. And then this boy sort of helps her out try to navigate through this world to try to help her parents. It's this magical thing, and there's so many... There's a scene... It's one of the most beautiful scenes I've ever seen where she's on a train going through to see the twin sister of this bathhouse owner, and she's with this no-face character, and it's just so cool. Like You show just different stops, and it's a train along this kind of wide-open lake, and just people are getting on and off like a normal subway, and it's, it's just so beautiful. But what I love about this movie, aside from just the visual, just coolness of it, is that I think what it's about thematically is about how when you move to a new place and you're that young, how scary the world seems and how right. weird the world seems to you and how isolated you can feel. Isolated from your parents, isolated from other people who are part of this world how you picture reality right now when you're moving to a new place and feeling that way is is captured by the general mood in right. a just a beautiful way and you know, it's also also just about the age you know like 12 you know that that age for a girl for a boy but maybe for a girl especially um that sort of 12 to 13 everything feels from what i hear kind of really scary and foreign and threatening and you just don't understand that once you settle into this new place the world is going to look totally different right. as it ends up happening for chihiro and the last thing i'll say it's sort of interesting so i've seen this now both in the japanese original japanese with subtitles and in the american version and in the american version they are after she's driving back with her parents her her dad says so are you still like sort of essentially gives away the theme of the movie says so are you still scared about moving to a to a new city and she says after all she's been through she says i think i can handle it and yeah. you know i thought that was fine when i first saw it but it's just not in the japanese version there's just huh. no the, the father doesn't say anything she doesn't say anything so, uh, so were there no lips moving during those lines i gotta go back and look at that because i've uh, only seen it once in the japanese version and i just remember whoa yeah you know you're right that that's too much exposition yeah yeah, I mean, the funny thing was, it wasn't for me at the time. I mean, I was just such a fan of the movie right. that I didn't mind them getting explicit about that. But still, it um, makes sense that he wouldn't feel the need 
right. to say that. Yeah, and I, I think a lot of what you said applies to My Neighbor Totoro as well. When I was first exposed to his movies, I was already, obviously, um, not a child anymore. And at first glance, it seemed like a cool, cool animation about fantastical worlds. Right. And until you sit and watch them, you, you don't really realize that this is... A, what, he ca- what he's capturing is something that, weirdly, we forget so easily, which is what the world looks like when you're a kid. Right. Now, it doesn't literally have to look like this. So, so the neighbor, my neighbor Totoro begins with um, a father and his two daughters who have to move to the countryside while the, the sick mother is receiving treatment for, for some, some disease. I don't think it's ever made explicit what it is. And uh, so they also are moving into a new house, new surroundings. There is a sort of a, a, the older girl must be right around age twelve, yeah. um, and then the younger girl is is sort of beginning school age. I would say six or something like that. You have both of them experiencing this. It's a very scary, even though they they don't feel they don't feel the the looming fear of the mother dying because I I think that it's not something that that you can really appreciate at that at that point. The mother doesn't die, by the way. She is raped and killed. She's, she's, she's committed suicide. Um, uh, what it captures is through the eyes of a kid what it must be like to to be in this brand new environment, right? A new house. There is all kinds of anxiety. Your dad is is there cleaning with you. He's trying to keep a happy face, but trying uh, to get work done too. Trying to get work done. And so what the reason I chose Totoro was it really does nicely a job of... of Why are you saying that like it's Hispanic? Because Totoro. because it's always closer to the Japanese if I say it the way that it's pronounced in Spanish. To, I'll say it Totoro. Is that how you want yeah, to say it? Yeah, dude. Totoro. Totoro. Love that movie. <laughs> what it does is, is it gets you that feeling of, wait, I'm not sure who's, who to trust. Whose yeah. perception of trust, right? So the little girl is the one who first encountered... Well, first, they seem to encounter these like, little dust spirits. And it's... So the adults give them this story that, in fact, there are... So they see the little girl see something moving around. The adults give them the story that there are these little spirits of dust that inhabit uh, old houses. If it were pure fantasy world, you would think, oh, this in this world, such spirits exist. But you start getting the sense that, well, it's just the parents are, are, or the adults are feeding them a story. But yeah. they see it. They yeah. see it. And then the little girl sees, meets this big creature, Totoro. Which adorable is creature. Adorable. The animation is just so cute. Yeah. Um, but she's the only one. So she falls asleep. She sees him in hiding in sort of inside this huge camphor tree. And she falls asleep on his belly, but when she wakes up and is found by her, her sister, she's actually just sleeping on the ground. And so right away, you know, we have a Snuffleupagus uh, <laughs> situation going on here. Before <laughs> Snuffleupagus, <laughs> some of our younger listeners might not know that Snuffleupagus used to be hidden. He used from... to be only seen by Big Bird, and then yeah. they felt the need. Uh, they felt the need to actually bring him out. You know, that's like, when. I, that's right. Right there, you pinpoint America's decline. Exactly. Starting at you know, that moment. Like, why can't we just? Have our children deal with the ambiguity that Snuffleupagus may or may not exist only in the mind of Big Bird and that Bert and Ernie are most certainly gay. (laughs) Um, I think they've already – they came out, right? I don't know. They they did an episode of them like (laughs) 69ing. I think think that was your fan fiction. Uh, (laughs) Understood this way where the fantastical creatures – 
it's not important how what the girls were seeing. What's important is that through the eyes of children and through the culture, they are seeing the world with these fears and hopes. And and I think that even if we might not even want to admit that we would ever believe in these fantastical creatures when we were kids, but we most certainly believed in some really weird things. And that's just part of, I think, understanding what reality is. You have, at some point, you no longer believe in those things. But it does, in, in Miyazaki's movies, it doesn't make them less real. Right. Right. And, and, and he conveys that emotion, that feeling of childhood in a way that I, I, I don't know how he does it. Like I, you know, it's I, incredible. I, yeah. I feel like I, I had lost it already by the time. You know. and, 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 and there's also in both movies a kind of comment on the parents. Yeah. So the parents are a lot more sympathetic in Totoro. The father and the mother are a lot more sympathetic. But, that fa- but it's always the child that notices the magic that's going on right. because there's a positive part of their new environment they're in this really cool beautiful house you know and with all sorts of new stuff to explore but the father is always sort of at the desk trying to work trying to get stuff done and is blind to it at first you know i really i can relate to that way too much there's just really cool stuff going on my daughter wants me to come out and do something and and play in a way and i'm like no i gotta get this stupid i gotta send off this email or i gotta and it's also a reminder to adults that there is this world can be pretty cool to explore and you have to right. stop doing and there's it. this i think those little dust spirits are the best way yeah. to describe this like look obviously they're just dust bunnies but in the eyes of in those new eyes in those curious eyes and those eyes that don't have much experience in the world uh, just a little prompt that you know there are these dust spirits and then there's wind that blows and you see them sort of swirl around like wow right like oh my god granny was right like there really are dust spirits, and and like I said, what what they end up believing isn't really the point. What what it's that it's capturing that essence that the way that children are making sense of reality and the way that they use it to try to deal with what's going on in their environment. Because you know, throughout a lot of these movies, they're trying they're sort of lost control of what's going on in their in their environment, and they're they're struggling mm-hmm. to get they're, a grasp yeah, they're struggling yeah. to sort of fix themselves within this new yeah. place. And yeah, no, both just absolutely amazing movies. If you have kids or even if you don't, but if you have kids, there's nothing better than watching those movies with your kid and talking about it and explaining it. Some of my favorite memories of all time are just watching a movie like Spirited Away or Totoro or Howl's Moving Castle or some of the Pixar movies, too, and just sort of talking about it with Well, the Pixar movies are so literal. I mean, even though they're they're fake worlds. It's just amazing. It's a different, it's a different feel. Yeah. They, they have, they have yeah. a lot that's good about. It. I still think The Incredibles is one of the great all-time children movies. Yeah. But anyway, um, I, 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 I was in Japan in March, and I brought back for Eliza like a cool Totoro stuffed Totoro. Uh, she looked at so me like, cool. she, like for like she loved me for the first time. Yeah, all I do is bring back Doctor Doom bobbleheads. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Let's take a break and we'll come back and finish off our list. Top five movies about reality, the subjective nature Ish. of it. Don't answer it. 
do you think you are? Welcome back to Very Bad Wizards. I actually have three movies left, and you have two movies left because of overlap. We're we're pretty much right. seeing eye to eye on this so far. I know it's it's like the the least very bad wizardsy uh, episode. I hope this doesn't mean that I'm um, turning content. <laughs> I think you just haven't had enough alcohol tonight. I think that's right. Well, <laughs> because sober people tend to agree with me. <laughs> so my number three, I'm about to go pretty deep on you right now. I'm going to go deep uh, on your right. ass. It's not, the movie itself isn't – the movie is a fairly standard pick. But what I'm going to say about it is some – this is real shit. This, you're going to pull an unforgiven – you're going <laughs> to – <laughs> uh, it's real talk, real shit. All right, so the movie is Adaptation. The mm-hmm. Spike Jones movie from a Charlie Kaufman script. It's a very funny movie. The main character is played by Nicolas Cage, and he plays Charlie Kaufman. And he plays sort of a real-life, supposedly a real-life version of Charlie Kaufman. You even see him coming to the set of being John Malkovich, and everyone sort of wanting him to get out of their face. Because uh, huh. he also wrote, Charlie Kaufman also wrote that. And he is trying to adapt Susan Orlean's book, The Orchid Thief, into a movie. And he's struggling with that. And the movie is about his struggle to do it. Nicolas Cage also plays um, somebody who doesn't exist in real life Charlie Kaufman's twin, Donald who is sort of, in every way that Charlie Kaufman is very angst-ridden, kind of Woody Allen-ish, always stressed out, never having the kind of confidence to go with his ideas. And Donald, Donald is the opposite of that. He's very sweet. He's, he's clearly, he's, he's not the brightest bulb in the, brightest bulb in the whatever, sharpest <laughs> knife in the drawer, uh, sharpest tool in the sharpest shed. Sharpest bulb in the shed. But he's got just this sort of, sunny confidence about everything and he also is an aspiring screenwriter and and comes up with a very funny screenplay called the three okay there's a serial killer right well no wait and he's being hunted by a cop and he's taunting the cop right sending clues who his next victim is he's already holding her hostage in his creepy basement so the cop gets obsessed with figuring out her identity and in the process falls in love with her even though he's never even met her she becomes like, like, like the unattainable, like, like the Holy Grail. It's a little obvious, don't you think? Okay, but here's the twist. We find out that, that the killer really suffers from multiple personality disorder, right? See, he's, he's actually really the cop and the girl. All of them are him. Isn't that fucked up? The only idea more overused than serial killers is multiple personality. On top of that... You explore the notion that cop and criminal are really two aspects of the same person. See every cop movie ever made for other examples of this. Mom called it psychologically taught. Compared to Synecdoche, it's actually an easy plot to follow. And a, fun, um, and a very sort of easy movie right. to watch. Here's why I chose it for this theme. 
Um, I started to think about the whole concept of adapting another work for a movie or just adapting another work, period, for another genre of art. And it seemed like a very good metaphor for how we experience the world. So, in other words, this is where I'm going deep on you. And just think about this. Maybe <laughs> choke up. philosopher. Uh, <laughs> We are adapting reality, and our subjective experience is our way of adapting what is given to us by reality. Um, this is gonna. This sounds too fucking Kantian already to my ears, <laughs> but I think that's what he's playing with. Kaufman's playing with. Spike Jones is playing with in this movie is that it that the the whole idea of of adaptation is sort of a metaphor for what we do all the time what we do every day is we take a we take a sort of the the target thing which is the reality that's out there and we interpret it in our own different idiosyncratic ways and that's what he's doing in the movie with the susan orlean book and what's cool about it is (laughs) <laughs> the plot sort of becomes very Hollywoody towards the end. The, the whole project that he's embarking on, he turns it into something with a much more traditional plot structure. And again, I think that's a great metaphor for what we do sometimes. We take reality and we interpret it in ways that, are, that can sometimes be cliched or they can sometimes be just more traditional to make it make more sense to us. Right, like doing podcasts with top five lists. And, but. Yes, that just organizes the world. <laughs> it, it does. It organizes the world in ways in which other people have organized it for. No, I, I like that. It is very Kantian, and, and yeah. you know, I'm sure we're going to get Sorry. shit about people that, that say, do you really believe there's a real reality? But I don't think that matters here. What matters no. is, is whatever it is that you're interpreting, what, whatever the things are that are causing us to experience what we experience, um, they get filtered through a particular lens. And I like that adaptation because it's sort of showing you a variety of filters at the same time. And it's showing you change, how they change over time. That's right. And and it is. It's not to sound cheesy, but this whole thing could sound cheesy. Metaphor for what reality, like how we, you know, how we construct reality. How we construct reality. <clears throat> God, we are so, this is. We're so deep, dude. This, this is, is like, a, like two sophomores right now. Somebody asked last time the who morning. was the philosopher. We're both we're, clearly philosophers. We really are today. <laughs> We haven't mentioned one fucking philosophy paper or one psychological finding. All right, so brain in the vat, blah blah blah. Uh, bra- oh yeah, yeah, brain in the vat. Um, let's get, here's maybe some psychology with my next movie. All right, some data, <laughs> my, some pee hacking. Um, my, no, but by the way, I really wanted to include some Star Trek episodes, but I knew you were just going to give me some so much shit, and I just didn't want to deal with it. Yeah, I didn't. I didn't want my reality tonight to include Your nerd reality. That you would give me when I talk about the holodeck and, and well, it's, when, it's not top five TV episodes. So unless you're going to bring I, in like Star Trek, the listen the sometimes longer when version. You, sometimes when you link them together, the to be continued episodes are it might as well be a movie. Yeah. <laughs> this is my reality. Sort of like the Lulu episodes. Actually, those six elevator episodes are like a movie <laughs> or a short film. For a while, you had to say two things about uh, Lulu. You had to say. It's like sh- a series of short films, and then you had to say, oh, and New York is like a character. 
Yeah, you couldn't. Re- you weren't allowed to review Louis without saying that New York it's was a character. Like, it's it's like when people would review The Wire and call it Dickensian, <laughs> and then it, in the last season he just started like fucking with that, like by having the journalists say it in all kinds of cliched ways, and um, having the last season kind of <coughs> suck. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> too close to home. So my next pick is and these. By the way, are in in order of uh, of quality, obviously. Yeah, mine are. Um, but. Uh, this is this is a particular kind of movie um, that I think is well represented by by this film, and the it, the film is Donnie Darko, and um, it's uh, well a couple things to say. If you haven't seen Donnie Darko, you should watch it. Just don't watch the director's cut; it's horrible. It's it's quite bad. Uh, Donnie Darko is is a story about a young man played by Jake Gyllenhaal who seems to be having. Um, Sort of hallucinations and delusions. Donnie, you're such a dick. <laughs> Whoa, Elizabeth. A little hostile there. Maybe you should be the one in therapy, then mom and dad can pay someone $200 an hour to listen to all your thoughts, so we don't have to. Okay. You want to tell mom and dad why I stopped taking your medication? You're such a fuckass. <laughs> Please. Did you just call me a fuckass? Elizabeth, that's enough. You can go suck a fuck. Oh, please tell me, Elizabeth. How exactly does one suck a fuck? <laughs> you want me to tell you? Please tell me. We will not have this at the dinner table. Stop. He's, he's getting co- consistent communication from what looks like a, a person in a giant bunny suit. The person in the giant bunny suit is telling Donnie that the world is going to end in 28 days. And he's also telling him to do other sort of destructive things. And you see Donnie talking to the counselor and, and you see, you know, he's clearly displaying what we would classify as, as, you know, as symptoms of schizophrenia. You know, you don't you don't believe right away that he's he just has a straight up mental illness because of, like, the movie might not be as interesting if that were the case. But so the movie is a piece of art. Is, is great. I think that the, the tone it conveys, this sort of general brooding Jake Gyllenhaal, the, the mad you world like the, song. Yeah. The, it's very emo. Along with an, a number of other movies in this genre, the, this is tackling, I think, one very specific problem, which is we know that our minds, our brains are the only things that link us to reality. Right? It's the only... If you've ever had anything like... Uh, like a bad trip on drugs or a panic attack or any other form of mental illness that leads you to perceive things in a different way or... Or, or even just or, gone, like being in just a wretched mood about everything that's going on in your life. Go to sleep mood. and wake up and you're, the same right. predicament right. just doesn't seem that bad. It seems completely different. Yeah. So every once in a while it's completely salient. That's your only connection with reality. Right. And when something goes wrong, right, when something breaks up there... Uh, the disconnect with the reality that everybody else has is really, really disturbing. The, the theme here is, you know, what if those guys are right? Yeah. Like, what if they're not broken? And, and I think that this does a, a bit of a disservice to people who truly suffer from mental illness. This is not... Even they often know that they don't have some secret link to, to reality. But nonetheless... There are certainly people who have been revered as as prophets and as soothsayers and who are clearly suffering from mental illness. I think that it's always been a question for people. How do we know that our brains are the ones that are really connected to the noumena? To (laughs) To, the reality. Right? Um, This is, by the way, why we don't like you fucks at Cornell manipulating our emotions on Facebook. 
I know. We are the aliens of the Matrix. <laughs> when, whenever you feel, whenever you use slightly more positive words in your Facebook status updates, we get the energy we need to survive <laughs> as, a, as an alien civilization. <laughs> okay, so there are there are others. Uh, there are other movies like this. I think um, a Beautiful Mind is is sort of like this, where uh, you you may think that. Um, uh, Nash, that his hallucinations are are real people. You find out they aren't. One, oh, one that I just watched called Safety. Have you seen a movie called Safety Not Guaranteed? No. Uh, it's great. It's an indie film about a guy who puts an ad in the paper that he wants a time traveling companion, and the, the whole time you just think he's crazy. Turns out maybe not. Uh, so the the theme going that way that like hey maybe crazy people aren't that crazy um, is fun. Yeah. And then there's the other one that like, oh shit, this guy was they're really going fucked crazy. up. Like the Steve, they're they're really going crazy. They're, you know, there's a particular kind of movie that's a very that's heartbreaking, and you just see like Shutter slowly the, the the severed reality, the severed right. connection to reality uh, of the character as it goes through, and it's just never recovered. I mean, right? Um, Shutter Island with Leo DiCaprio yeah. is is an attempt at this. I didn't like it too too much. Um, but you know, it's a great book. Is I would it, recommend reading the book. Um, I actually thought the movie was okay. I, a lot of people, I, I had a higher opinion of the movie than a lot of people. I thought it did a decent job of capturing it, but the book is great yeah. and it's intense. All right, your number. So two. Donnie Darko, yeah. good pick. I saw it. I don't remember. Honestly, I don't remember the first thing about it. Like I saw it when it came out, and or maybe just after. And it's, I don't remember the first. I remember kind of liking it, but it's creepy. It's yeah. it's great just for it's the tears, taking the tears for fears, happy, mad world song, and turning it into a really sad emo song. <laughs> yeah, and Maggie Gyllenhaal is in it too. She is. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You're you, who you don't like, and you say mean things I, about. You know, just what did she say about her that she looks like a <laughs> like Droopy? I mean, oh yeah, Droopy was a lovable minor cartoon character. <laughs> <laughs> But, uh, <laughs> All right, what's your number two? My number two is another documentary, and it's in some ways the ultimate pick for this topic. When you're in the middle of a story, it isn't a story at all, but only a confusion, a dark roaring, a blindness. It's only afterwards that it becomes anything like a story when you're telling it to yourself or to someone else. Dad, can you just go back over that one line? I was being so real. <laughs> it's by Sarah Pauly, and it's called Stories We Tell. It's, it's, it's a really cool movie. It came out last year. It's a documentary. At first, you, it's, it's sort of about her mother who died mm-hmm. when she was pretty young. And her father, Mike Polly, and, and, and all the relatives. And she starts out just sort of interviewing people and asking them about her mother. And then you see just a ton of footage of the mother that sort of complements what everybody is saying about her on the screen. Uh, then you find out that her father, Mike, Michael Polly, might not be her real father. And then the movie sort of turns into sort of figuring out who her real father is. And it doesn't take long to find out who it is. And without, it, it's not spoiling anything to really say. What, it, it turns mean? out that, it it's, <laughs> that it's not her real father. Uh, that uh, there's this other guy who you meet about halfway through the movie. And you have 
a story of her sort of finding out that her biological dad is different from the person that she thought it was, and then also just everybody telling the story of how this happened and why. And at first you think her father is somebody else. Clearly this uh, mother fucked around. For a while you think it was someone else, and you just it's all told through interviews and old footage of the mother. And you're just getting everybody's perspective. You know, the movie is very self-consciously about the fact that everybody's giving their own subjective account of the mother's character and also of what happened. It doesn't hide the fact. Sarah Polly doesn't say much, but what she does talk about is that theme, that this is what she's trying to get at in the movie. Um, Something happens about two-thirds or three-quarters of the way through the movie that I will not spoil that is very cool and that plays on that theme perfectly. And it's just it's, – it's beautifully constructed. It's very moving. You, you know, as one of the family members says, like why does, would anyone care about our family, like a story about our family? But you do care about it because the characters are fairly engaging. Her brothers are funny and insightful. The sisters are also really... Everyone everyone has something that's really cool to say. You get everyone's sort of opinion, everyone's sort of reaction to what happens, um, except Sarah Polly's, really. She doesn't really talk about how she feels about learning that this father is not her father. She tells the story of finding it out and emailing and exchanging and then meeting him, and then you meet this guy... And he now wants to tell the story of his great love with her mother. And what you realize at the end of the movie, even though Sarah Polly is the only person who's not interviewed at length about how she feels about her mother, her her biological father, and her and Michael Polly, who sort of who sort of raised her because her mother died young. Then you go. Then you realize when the movie's over that you're getting Sarah Polly's perspective just in how she's editing and telling this story. Hmm. Like, you realize that the hero of this movie and the person that's closest to her and the person she wants to sort of champion and just sort of express her love is her is Michael Polly, the person she thought was her biological dad but, but now isn't. And, again, she's not saying it, but just... The way she's editing it, how much attention he gets, how much screen time he gets, the things that the biological dad used to – the biological dad who actually – I mean he, he can come across as really thoughtful and brilliant in some of the things that he says. But he also comes across as very sort of self-absorbed, whereas the, the father really is portrayed in entirely sympathetic. It, it's a very – you know, self-conscious but really effective technique of saying, okay, I want to tell this story, but I'm biased, and here's the way I'm biased. Without actually telling you that I'm biased this way, the, 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 the act of filming the movie this way and editing it this way and is betraying my biases. And, mm-hmm. and in that way, it's sort of the ultimate movie for me for this theme, which is we can never ex- escape that perspective and our biases. The best we can do is hope to understand them and express them in the best way we can. That's a little dep- it's actually a little depressing. I mean, you, you, know, you, you think that listening to lots of people talk um, getting multiple perspectives that that's the way to get at something that's more objective then you realize that could be just another way to trick people into seeming like you're being objective right um, exactly. but 
Which he's not yeah. doing in, in the sense that the movie is so much about this. It's not like a, you know an Oliver Stone movie that has an agenda, but it's not telling you that it right, has that agenda. Right, right, right. Uh, cool. Stories We Tell, recommended. It's probably the, the one on the list that most of our listeners haven't seen. It's streaming on Netflix. Streaming on Netflix. Wow. For, for now. For now, so hurry. <laughs> uh, what is streaming on Netflix now as well as my last movie? Again, this is not my number one. And in fact, there are a lot of reasons to hate this movie. But I'll tell you why I kept it on. Um, it's Waking Life. Oh, yeah. There are a lot of reasons to there hate that movie. a lot of movie. reasons to hate this movie. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, and I think that anybody who probably listens to, to our podcast would listen to it and watch the If you get through the whole thing, you will... You, think it's pretentious and and wrong in many and 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 maybe a waste of your time but i included it for a couple of reasons i I am fascinated by dreams there is something about dreams that i think to any you know the moment that we had consciousness uh we were having dreams and this presents itself as an alternative reality that is independent of your body and so it's no it's no weird thing that people would uh, come to have dualistic beliefs or believe in in sort of a supernatural realm or at the very minimum believe that things that were happening in the dream world which has sort of nearly the dreamscape is infinite um, might actually be meaningful or even causal for things that happen in the real world so why include this i mean so this is essentially this is richard linklater who has made a few really interesting movies using a technique that he that he per- really perfected. He didn't invent it, but uh, of rotoscoping, which is using real actors but drawing over them so that it looks like animation. has a very, very surreal look. Um, and it's one main character that is just going around... In the what, g- a guy that's in all of his movies. It's in all, yeah. One reason to like it is the philosopher Robert Solomon, Bob Solomon, is in there uh, talking about Sartre and the emotions. And Existentialism is often discussed as if it's a philosophy of despair. But I think the truth is just the opposite. Sartre, once interviewed, said he never really felt a day of despair in his life. But one thing that comes out from reading these guys is not a sense of anguish about life so much as... A real kind of exuberance, a feeling on top of it. It's like your life is yours to create. David Sosa might be in it as oh, well. Oh, interesting. Yeah, I, it's all well, the UT Austin faculty. Right, yeah, because apparently yeah. Linklater was was at UT Austin, and yeah. he, he always wanted to sort of include. And Kane's theory is talked about anyway. Uh, Bob Kane, the, uh, yeah. Um, uh, there's a big free will thing in it right, after a, that movie. That's why I hate this movie is because everyone was like, "Dude, you got to see Waking Life." It's it is it is worse than a sophomore trying to tell tell you what they know about philosophy. Yeah, so, it's not. I don't think it's bad. No, Actually, it's, it's only bad for people. We people like us call it pretentious because we just think we know so much more. It's a little boring. <laughs> it is. It's self indulgent. It's self indulgent. It's a, but I love it because. Because it seems to capture something about what it's like to be dreaming. And that's hard to do. And that's the really, at the end of the day, aside from Bob Solomon, who I got to meet before he passed away and, and have a conversation about this movie. Um, Some people a, think is my real dad. Speaking really? Of real dads, because he dated my mom for a while <laughs> when I was, uh, you know, my parents were divorced at the time. Yeah. But yeah. 
<laughs> so for a while in graduate school, everyone made fun of me. They said Bob Solomon is my real dad. Uh, so so for that reason, the, the fact that it captures what I think is is such an interesting uh, aspect of of human reality, which is this thing that we do every night. We just go into this other world and we come back. You're just like ah, there was that. Oh yeah, I interacted with all sorts of people, but I guess it was just a brain fart. It was just like you know, um, and and so so I like it. But all it takes really is ten minutes of watching it. And, and I agree it that it's very difficult to capture what it's yeah. like to be in a dream, and the movies or scenes that do that. I just deserve our respect just for that. <laughs> right. There's this one part where he's, he's, he's being driven by a, like a sea captain and he asks him. So he just finds himself, you know, in this guy's car, boat, slash car, slash boat. He's like, so where should I drop you off? And he's like, uh, he know he knows that he should have an answer to where he wants to be dropped off. But yeah, he's like, I don't I don't know. You know, right. and, it, it, and that really captures like it's almost like you're in a play and you don't know the lines. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Yeah. And you have, and, and it doesn't strike you as weird that you would be there. It just strikes you as frustrating that you don't know the <laughs> right. answer. <laughs> right. That's the most common thing, at least from my dreams, is really frustrated and like I can't get the thing done right that I'm supposed to. Right. And right. Like the guy isn't kissing you back or whatever. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Ernie. Ernie. All right. You're number one. Well, is, these aren't in any good order, but right. I mean, in, in some ways, this might be my favorite of all these Mine movies. certainly was not. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I would probably hope. My, yeah. But this is probably my favorite movie. It's definitely probably in my top 20 of all time. And it's David Lynch's Mulholland Drive. Oh, yeah. Yeah. This movie is fantastic. Contrary to what a lot of people think, it actually makes perfect sense. Like people think, oh, that's it's of, of all his movies, with the exception of maybe uh, Blue Velvet and uh, that Straight Story, I guess. But of all the movies, like this movie is, you can figure it out. Right. It's not even like Memento, where there are nagging questions afterwards. There's no nagging questions. You can figure out this movie, but it requires effort. It requires what, a ton but, of. But effort. once the puzzle it's, is solved, it's solved. Once the puzzle is solved, it solves, and everything sort of fits into place. And part of the fun of this movie is just trying to figure out what's going on, and then going back and watching it again with the proper lens. And right. it's also the sort of the, and I'm not going to spoil anything, but I will say it's the ultimate sort of Hollywood movie in the sense of the sort of the innocent young person going out to Hollywood with dreams of making it big. Right. And the yeah. sort of, and the difference between... Getting off the bus from Idaho with a suitcase and a tight shirt on. Exactly. <laughs> Naomi Watts, who's absolutely outstanding in this movie. I love her, She's yeah. just incredible. And she plays this this aspiring actress that's coming out to Hollywood and just gets embroiled in this crazy sort of mystery and also sort of falls in love with this other woman who she who's just had a car accident and she finds just in this bedroom of her aunt's apartment and there's this mystery that is calling on a lot of old hollywood tropes and and self-consciously sort of homaging tarantino hitchcock under the table movie references in this um, he's so goddamn confusing though what he homages people by like adding a layer of obfuscation <laughs> It is, but I'm telling you, this is movie, once it fits into place, because I, I normally don't like that. I don't like weird for the sake of being weird. Yeah, most people won't get there. 
Yeah. Because you know, it's so weird on the surface. Fine. Whatever. <laughs> I mean, I before I totally figured it out, yeah. I actually have, I have to credit Jen, who sort of, while we were watching it, sort of said the key thing that you have to say. You know, we've never seen her. <laughs> we've heard her now, though. We, for the first yes, time. we have. That's right. Yeah. But you're right. We've never seen her. <laughs> Maybe she's an invention. Okay. About halfway through the movie, no, more, probably two-thirds of the way through the movie, you get this scene, which is a spooky and unbelievably beautiful haunting scene, and everything changes. No, I, Banda, there is no band. Il n'est pas de orchestra. This is all a tape recording. No, I, Banda, and yet, we hear a band. If we want to hear a clarinet, listen. Un trombone a colis. Un trombone can sordina. Everything completely changes. A lot of the, all the same people from the first part of the movie are now in the second part of the movie, but they're completely different. And everything's a lot seedier and everything's a lot sort of just, again, I don't want to spoil anything. Yeah. Um, after that scene, you are completely disoriented. Hmm. Now, I'm not going to talk, talk about the plot anymore because I don't want to spoil anything, but I will talk about the themes of it and the, uh, specifically a couple of themes. The first is how, how people tend to romanticize. Like I think you and I are, are, are romanticizers, right? We take things. When we talk about honor or revenge, we probably ro- do a lot of romance. We've been called out right. by listeners in for the, that. In the sense that we, we clearly do not focus on the horrible nasty aspects yeah we take yeah. we take a part of life and we sort of picture it in a way that is just fun and exciting and thrilling and the reality can be very different from that but then also and this is what i was thinking about today when i was thinking about this movie again i think this is also about how we can take events that have already happened Pretty uh, events that say something kind of ugly about us and ugly about reality. And we can spin that in ways that, again, are exciting, thrilling, and romantic. You know, sometimes this will happen in dreams, and sometimes it'll happen in real life. And I was thinking of one thing I've never understood. So two examples. The biggest is Lance Armstrong, right? He had denied and went through such lengths to portray reality in a way that he didn't take performance-enhancing drugs, including like, right. like just attacking people's lives, suing people, really destroying people's reputations. This is why it's so despicable. 
And right. you wonder just what, like, how, what he's telling himself this whole time. Like, what is he, how is he picturing the world right now in a way that makes what he's doing okay? Because once right. it comes out what he really did, it's, it's, it, it, it's the most despicable thing you've ever heard of. Yeah. Yeah. That's, no, I've thought about this quite a bit. I mean, there is, is it self-deception? Because you almost want to believe that he believes it. You know, it's like George when, when Jerry on... On Seinfeld asks him how he's such a good liar, and he says, "You gotta believe it." <laughs> but I mean, um, but, but but at some level, he had to know that he had clearly he does right. Yeah, <laughs> right. clearly it's some. It's like, is it? Could you fracture your mind such that, like, when you're actually doing it, that you are, and then when you're actually saying that you don't do it, that that this is. I can't imagine a way in which this could lead to anything other than an ulcer. Right. Um. <laughs> but uh, but it seems fairly common. You know, like the whole stero- – I mean he's not the only example. Roger Clemens is another great example of somebody yeah. who so clearly did steroids and yet fought it to the death. You right. know, in front of Congress, in front – you know, just the most indignant – it's the and, – and, and the other guy, the other biker, uh, Floyd Landis, right? Like just how indignant and angry they were. And like, what, how, how do you, you whip yourself up into that kind of fury when you know that there's nothing to be indignant about? You did it, right? Especially like when it's so obvious that it's going to that that it is simply a matter of doing the right sort of investigation. Right, right? it's like, a matter of time if, if until you you'll hit be discovered. The body and yeah. you like cover your tracks and like you know I can see adopting that strategy. What I can't understand at all is. You know that next week the the cops are going to you know to start digging up your backyard and the body's right there like you know and yet uh, you're still sort of maintaining yeah, it's your hope. innocence and also just it's the sort of moral indignation that they summon against right. their accusers that is sort of hard to fathom. The other example I was thinking we were talking about Colin McGinn and I don't want to dredge that whole thing up, right. but there was a period where he was posting about it on his blog after the whole sort of story came out and the posts were so unbelievably damning on their own i think we probably talked about this what is he thinking like how does he imagine that this is (laughs) that this looks good that this is something that will help his case rather than sort of cement the case against him and um, and again, it's a similar thing where I think we can take events, and I don't know what happened in the Colin McGinn case, uh, but yeah. but we can take events and we can spin them in a way that we actually believe is a lot more advantageous for us. And this movie is a great example, uh, you know, a, a, a stylized, tremendously stylized, but a great example also of that. Not just of the romanticizing that we're capable of doing of a, of a new experience or a foreign experience but of something that we've actually done or like a part of our life a part of our character just we can't ever trust what we think about a situation no i think and i think that in psychology we've we've underestimated the ease with which we can deal with blatant inconsistencies in our life we can we can you can shoot up as an athlete that morning and be indignant I swear, genuinely indignant at the accusation that you shot up in that afternoon. And, you know, we have theories from the 50s about cognitive dissonance and how this leads to a state of discomfort and we can't deal with it. And I think actually we're pretty (laughs) pretty damn good good at at compartmentalizing. You know, I think any time 
<laughs> Anytime you've ever done something that if you have that you're so ashamed of that you almost in the moment you're like, oh, my God, I can't believe that you would say that, you know, yeah. <laughs> uh, that's right. I mean, I think we're really good at it. And I've definitely had situations myself when I can get worked up and indignant and mad and nobody's responding to me in the way that I think <laughs> ought to be responded to <laughs> and right. I spit back and I wonder am I the crazy person here am yeah. I like you know part of it is being aware of this as a phenomenon but I have that experience too often where I think you know maybe they're right and I really am being a huge asshole or I'm right. being unreasonable or all right all right let's uh, let's wrap it up you have some honorable mentions but I think maybe you just put them on the web page well, let me just quickly read them. I got to read them. I'm so upset, that, uh, at least about some of these. Primer. Have you seen Primer? Yeah, Primer's great. Holy yeah. shit. Dark City. Eh. Like, that wasn't a big thing. Eternal Sunshine, Memento. Truman Show. I haven't seen Truman Show in, in a long time, so I didn't put it on. Yeah. Uh, it's, I, I always remember it as a one-trick pony. I mean, it is. The premise is interesting. Yeah. But, but, that's but then it, it just doesn't Then it get. becomes a story about Truman overcoming, yeah. you know. Uh, Rosemary's Baby, The Shining. Uh, here's one that maybe uh, some listeners haven't seen, a Woody Allen movie, Purple Rose of Cairo. Very good um, mm. and very funny and very uh, moving. The Conversation. This was one that was hard for me to leave off the list by Francis Ford Coppola, the movie he did somehow in the two years between he did The Two Godfathers. Um, the Conversation with Gene Hackman. Uh, perfect for this list and a great movie. You should see it if you haven't. Hot Fuzz, great Edgar Wright, very funny movie about right. reality not being what it seems. Shutter Island, you talked about. Rashomon, you talked about. That's it. Um, and so, you know... It's not a movie. It's a Star Trek episode, yep, Next Generation, yeah. The Inner Light, where Pic Captain Picard uh, experiences a whole entire lifetime in the span of what appears to be a few minutes of being passed out on the ship. Um, it's, it's actually a brilliant sci-fi episode, The Inner Light, <laughs> Star Trek, The Next Generation. So fuck you, movie lists. <laughs> so, yeah, we were at an hour and 50 minutes just of pure raw recording. <laughs> there was no way we were getting out of this without at least some Star Trek episode coming up. And uh, so it's almost like comforting to me. I would have wondered, like, if I was if in some alternate crazy. reality, if he had. If robot he had David had replaced. All right, well, happy 50th episode. I happy hope 50th. You all enjoyed uh, it. And. Have a shot. Next week, we don't know, right? We don't know. Uh, we're, there's some traveling going on, so there might... Uh, might so, be a break, uh, a little break. Might be, might be a little break, yeah. We'll 50 see. is a good, good place to break.